0: I started to feel like this actually wasn't worth it. You know, I felt like we weren't having enough of an impact for the the nurses and the doctors and the frontline users. It got to a point where our CTO at the time was in Zambia and I'm like, look, if they really don't think any of our ideas are valued, they don't want to hear this from us. I think they should find a new vendor. And this this was half of our revenue at the time. You know, we were talking with the project director and he's like, No, you know, we're gonna head this direction. This is what I think is best. And like, okay, well we respectfully disagree. Let's get you a new vendor who's aligned to your vision. And so we walked away from the project. It was terrifying. I was like, am I going to have to lay off people? Can I afford to pay everybody?
1: You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. Exactly one year ago, today, I released the very first episode of this podcast. To celebrate the one-year anniversary of Aid Evolved, I've invited John Jackson onto the show. John Jackson is the CEO and co-founder of Damagi a social enterprise that delivers digital solutions to improve lives in more than 130 countries. I've worked for John for what, almost a decade now? And don't tell him I said this, he's the smartest person I've ever met. Damagi is best known for ComCare, a platform that allows you to build mobile applications to support and improve the delivery of essential services. But we're not really gonna talk about ComCare in this conversation. Mostly, I took this opportunity to finally ask John, how was Damagi born? How was it shaped? What were some of the key strategic decisions he made that shaped the company in its early years? The conversation you're about to hear is two things. It's a story of how an MIT grad on Wall Street found his way into the social enterprise space. And it's also the story of how you shape a business to match one person's philosophy of impact particularly in the complex and often broken dynamics of the aid industry. How do you design for impact, not just at the level of a single project or single product, but at the level of a company and a business model? How do you create an ecosystem that can have a lot of failures, but ultimately, when it succeeds, it succeeds on behalf of everyone we're trying to serve. But let's dive in. John Grupp. In a family of technologists,
0: both my parents came from engineering backgrounds. So they were working at IBM and AT&T back in the heyday. And I was always drawn to technology through talking with them. I remember my dad had a memory board in our basement—you know, 32 kilobit piece of memory that was about the size of a modern video card today—and showed it to me. And he was into ham radio equipment, and we had all this tech in our basement. So I really just loved technology when I was a very young child in elementary school. Under ten, and as I grew, I was also really drawn to business, and I'm not quite sure why, because my parents didn't talk a ton about business at home. But I just loved the idea of starting a company or building something, and so I was really, you know, passionate from a very young age and wanted to to do something quite similar to what we're doing at Tomagi, So I've been very fortunate to uh, to follow that.
1: Even as a kid, even like twelve, fifteen year old John Jackson, really
0: six year old John Jackson um, went into business with his older sister. So she made me a friendship bracelet. Oh come on. And I Your was like, is "This there. is, yeah, I know exactly." And I was like, "This is really cool. Do you mind if I try to sell these to my friends?" And she's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I think we can offer a couple colors. You know, black and orange or black and red. They can select a little bit of, of variation, and we can sell it to them for like ten cents a string per bracelet. Each bracelet had eight strings." 80 cents a bracelet, round up to a dollar. And uh, yeah, we started selling <laughs> them to my first grade classmates. And it was actually, um, it, it took off. We, I think we sold it to most of the kids in my class. Um, so that was a ton kind of fun.
1: That rounding up is key. Yep. So you mentioned you have a bit of a, an entrepreneurial streak. You're interested in business, uh, as your as your poor sister found out. At what point in your life would you say you started your first proper venture? Like, what is the first thing that sticks in your mind? It's Like, yeah, like I really went in on, on something. Um, and that was it.
0: Um, I'd I say my first failed business was a web design company that I tried to start in high school. So this was when the internet was taking off. It was clear websites were going to be pretty popular. This was pre-Google, so the search engine I would embed in the websites was AltaVista, um, to, to give you a sense of how old it was. <laughs> and I went around we and I, I printed out, move, yeah, I, I tried to cold mail people. I printed out flyers and like, hey, small business, <laughs> we need to get onto the internet. And I mailed out a hundred of them, got zero responses and gave up.
1: That's awesome. Cold marketing is hard. It's still hard.
0: Yeah, I didn't have the same power for a direct mail campaign. But then <laughs> when I went to college, my um, freshman year, I immediately got involved in tech startups. And this was during the internet boom, you know, 9899 and uh, fell in love with the the idea of the startup ecosystem. And so I was kind of hooked after freshman year. You
1: weren't busy hanging out with friends or going to school or any of that?
0: I did hang out with friends less on the going to school than one might have hoped, but um, <laughs> I, I had an amazing um, supportive group of friends a- in college and I was really, really fortunate to find, um, you know, just a, I, I, I loved college. I loved programming. I would stay up all night working on my programming courses. I was less studious than some of the other courseware, unfortunately, but um, really <laughs> fell in love with programming. And then I tried to get into investing because this is when everybody, the entire stock market was booming. And so anybody could invest and think they were good at investing. Turns out I was mediocre at investing and the entire market was just going <laughs> crazy. So I quickly um, backed out of that idea and went back to programming. And I started actually doing research my um, freshman year. So I was really interested in the oh. interface of hardware and software. And I worked at the MIT Media Lab doing a project where you could step on a floor and I would know where you were. And then I would project different lights into the room to try to affect how people socially interacted. And one of the really, I I distinctly remember this moment because I was taking an electrical engineering course, learning about circuits in theory. And then I connected the wires on this floor mat so that it would send a signal into the computer and I could be like, hey, John's on square one, Rowena's on square three. And I remember mm-hmm. the moment I like, realized that the electrical signal was what I was reading in like, the programming I was writing, and my mind was kind of blown. I mean, it was this super simple <laughs> program, but I was like, oh my God, that's the electrical signal coming in through the floor, you know, into this driver and reading it as a one or a zero in you know, C++. Yeah, yeah. So this is all a little bit esoteric, but I, I, I really just loved software and hardware and technology. Uh, most of my life.
1: No, I, I totally hear you. There's a point where we all work with computers now, but like you you dig deeper and you dig deeper and you dig deeper. And that, right at that very bottom, at the layer of the of the electrons flowing on metal, it's basically magic, you know, like just somehow <laughs> this yeah. thing happens and that makes stuff work. Absolutely. But let's talk a little bit about some more of those twists and turns, particularly as we as we make your way over to Damagi, because I know you you did a few different things, even like uh, right out of university. You didn't immediately go into the global health space. I don't I don't believe you did a few other things, right?
0: Yeah. So I I had a startup senior year in college that was working on social networking, and this was before Facebook. Facebook and LinkedIn um, kind of completely blew up and took over the market.
1: Uh, should I should have stuck with that.
0: Yeah, I know, exactly. So we, <laughs> um, you know, we won a top MBA competition. It, was, it looked like a normal kind of standard, this is going to work type of experience. And what happened was I was selling the product to uh, high net worth individuals, venture capitalists, lawyers, and it was to help them network and do their jobs more efficiently. And I realized, well, I have a lot of respect for the legal profession and, and investors. Like I wasn't passionate about making that user group more productive. And so uh, this was pre Demangi, but it, one of the things I realized from that experience was I really wanted to care who I was building a product for and what would happen if my product got used. And that was something that kind of led me away from that to drift away from that original startup, um, but I didn't know what I was drifting towards yet. Did
1: you not like schmoozing with high net worth individuals? I mean, that has a certain appeal too, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was the CTO. Yeah, I was the CTO at the company. And I actually, this is when I started to realize I was pretty decent at sales. Because I think my mental model of what I was going to do was like, you know, be in the back room and and code and i would go to these meetings where we'd be pitching these venture capitalists and lawyers. And like, I felt pretty comfortable. It seemed like I got a lot of head nods when I'd make comments. So um, I did start to get the sense that maybe I could do the, you know, the business side of the job as well. But back then I was very, very technical. You know, I was writing code probably 16 hours a day for that startup.
1: Wild. That's very different from you now.
0: (laughs) Correct. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't write any lines of code anymore, although I, I miss it.
1: Did you just wake up one day and think, hey, you know, the, the time of the startup is done um, or was it was it going poorly?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was not going poorly. We had traction. Um, it was going well, in fact. And and I mm-hmm. I woke up and what happened was I I was feeling like this sense of this isn't necessarily what I should be doing or what I want to be doing. Didn't know what I was going to do mm-hmm. next. Our MIT computer science mailing list, an email went out saying, hey, there's this uh, student project that's building a PDA solution for Zambia. We're looking for graduate student advisors. And I was doing my master's at the time. Um, so I immediately emailed and I was like, can I uh, learn more about what you're looking for? And the the person who sent the email was actually Joaquin Blaya, who I'm friends with to this day, has been very active in the OpenMRS community. And and so he um, he and I chatted. And wow. I so I was like, I'm glad to help you. This sounds amazing. I didn't know people were working on this. And then he's like, by the way, I know this company, Damagi, and the co-founder, Vikram, who is kind of interested in this space. I'm not sure um, what, what they're, they're going to be up to going next. And so he introduced me to my co-founder, Vikram. We immediately hit it off, and I knew that was what I was going to do. Um, so that it was uh, 48 hours from getting that email to meeting Vikram and just being like, this is it. I'm, I'm jumping in.
1: Wild. You move quickly. What was it that drew you in about the idea of demagi? as you heard about it? Was it was it Zambia? Was it helping people? Was it something else?
0: Yeah. It, it, you know, I I was doing my master's at the time and my master's thesis was around if you could aggregate all this data in the world for clinical databases, you could detect disease early, which in hindsight would have been pretty nice for the world to have had over the last couple <laughs> of years. Wildly naive and how hard it would be to roll that out. But that was kind of the theory. I'm like, hey, we just had all this data, got all this data together. We could do this amazing mm. stuff, which is true, but you can't get the data together. And I was always drawn to you know how technology could potentially fit underserved use cases. And what I didn't know, actually, I had no idea about the development sector when I jumped in to do Damagi. And I thought the only way you could do that huh. kind of work was getting rich on your own and then using your own money. To, to go do projects like that. And Vikram's like, oh no, no, there's a whole industry <laughs> that, that can allow you to do it. Like, oh, great. I'm gonna go do it now, rather than trying to make a bunch of money um, and then and then use that later in my life. And so um, I was really, really fortunate to meet to meet Vikram and, and get that off the ground. But it was I kinda always wanted to do something like this, like use technology to help people be more efficient or more productive in the services they provided. Certainly not the vision that we have today at Damagi, but I had that mm-hmm. hunch that where I wanted to spend my life was around something related to technology and underserved populations.
1: What I find interesting about your journey is that for a lot of people, I think they get to it much later in life. You know, you graduate from college, you want to start a business, you're excited by it. So you you start a company and you go through that whole thing. And then maybe sometime when you're in your fifties. You're like, why, why am I doing this? And, and then you find your way into the social sector. Um, it sounds like you went through all of that in under a year.
0: <laughs> and, and it's even slightly better than that. I I was an intern on, on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs, um, which is a very popular investment bank in the United States. And I loved it. You know, I thought it was an amazing experience. I really liked finance. I love the people. Yeah. But I just, I, I, I could tell it wasn't.
1: You could have made so much money. <laughs>
0: I, know, I know. I know. Well, that, that's the downside. But, um, and it was, it was actually on yeah. the, it was on the mortgage trading desk. So it was on one of the desks Whoa. that I had to testify before Congress after the, the collapse of the, the mortgage in the United States.
1: Oh, so it's good you got out. <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. Although it would have been a crazy ride had I stayed. But I, you know, I think I've always been very fortunate to have conviction that when I feel something you know isn't quite the right fit for me I've like known it you know so I had no self doubt when I left Wall Street they we had a really good summer they offered me a job and I was like I just know this isn't what I'm, I'm meant to do or what I'm going to be happy doing and they were like seriously you're gonna like turn us down on the spot I'm like yeah you know when you know mm-hmm. you know and that that was something that's always been part of my personality and has allowed me to be pretty decisive similarly when I met Vikram, I was like this is it you know we're gonna go do it
1: so how does somebody with no background in international development get started in the space, and how did John take advantage of the education and the skills he did have in order to really set Demagio apart?
0: I was totally sold on it, but I was like, "Okay, seriously, how's this whole industry work?" So I bought a bunch of development <laughs> books. I bought Paul Farmer's "Mountain Beyonds Mountains," excellent book. Jeff Sachs, uh, "End of Poverty." just a, a lot of the development book junkies. And, and as you know, working at Damagi, we had a reading list of, of a bunch of these that people would mm-hmm. often um, read. So I, I immediately started reading about the industry and I, I came away with two quick things. One was, it's really easy to point out all the failures of this work. You know, there's there's tons of stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. work. And I was also like, but that doesn't do anybody any good. You know, sitting on the sidelines talking about how <laughs> nothing works isn't all that helpful to, to trying to help the underserved. And I was also incredibly motivated by people like Paul Farmer, Jeff Sachs, and others who were dedicating their lives and careers to try to improve these outcomes and development, and specifically within the healthcare sector. So very quickly, I was kind of like, okay, this is going to be really hard, but I'm going to be one of those optimistic people. And I'm going to think this is worthy and noble and, and that we can succeed at it. The other was, mm-hmm. I, I was like, I think we can build a uniquely strong tech company. You know, I knew my personal programming skills were quite strong. And looking around, I felt like bringing, you know, Google-level engineers into the industry could be a, a niche for us. And the position that we had and the connections um, I had coming through MIT's technology um, degree program, I felt like could give us a unique advantage at Tamaki. And so that's where we we decided to take the company. And when I joined, I was the CTO and we kind of we called refounded the company into a software mm-hmm. engineering shop, and that was kind of my vision for where I thought we could make the most impact. And so when I when I first started, I was writing a national scale medical record system um, in Zambia. Uh, you know, probably programming eighteen hours a day, like nonstop. Um, okay. You know, on the system, and, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was very intense, but it was a ton of fun.
1: Wow. What was Demagi before you refounded it?
0: Um, it was public health consulting. So we, my other two founders, Vish and Tarje. Um, have both gone on to do amazing work. Vish is now the CTO at Mayo Clinic and Terje is an executive at a a biotech company. And so amazingly talented people. And it was more public health consulting. So once you already had the data, how do you analyze it? And I I quickly came to the assumption or the the thesis that the data doesn't exist. As I said, I tried to do my master's on this um, as well. And I was like, no, 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 we need to build the underlying systems to create the data sets in the first place.
1: Hmm, that makes sense. So, John, you, you're setting up this company, you're turning into technical consulting. What was your early team like?
0: Yeah, so I actually, I was bad at hiring originally. I hired several different engineers from really? MIT. Yeah, and, and none lasted longer than You do than so much me. hiring now. I know, I know. I, I I got much better at it, but I was not good at selecting people who were trained programmers. I was good at selecting people who were smart, uh, which turns out not to necessarily be the best hiring criteria. And so th- those um, individuals um, found better jobs and are now have great careers, but weren't, that weren't a fit at Amagi. But I also hired people who did not um, align on the work ethic I was expecting. Um, one person <laughs> in particular.
1: Such a polished way of saying it. Did not align.
0: Yeah. yeah stopped responding to my emails, you know, for a couple weeks. I was just like, okay, I guess you don't Uh-oh. work here anymore. That's- you know, like dear so-and-so, um, if you don't respond to this email within the 24 hours, I'm going to assume you quit. Like that. I was sending that kind of email.
1: <laughs> Yikes. Were you in an office together?
0: Yeah. Like we were working in a shared space at the time. And then four days uh-huh. later, I get an email after about two weeks. And he was like, oh yeah, I was a Burning Man. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. And I'm like, you can't go to Burning Man for <laughs> two weeks. And not, there's like three of us who work at the company at the time. You know, I'm just like...
1: <laughs> you think no one's going to notice
0: that? Uh, yeah, I was just like, am I am I like doing this wrong? Am I too young? Like, is this normal? <laughs> and I, and I, I talked to the victim, and he was like, no, man, no, that's not normal. That's just totally not how this goes. <laughs> so I did realize people have very idiosyncratic um, working styles and personalities.
1: And you fired him, right?
0: Yeah, I fired him. But it's really fun to be able to accommodate that when it does work out too, you know, there, there's amazing people who work at the Damagi who have all these different personality types and interests, but um, everybody works really, really hard. And and we do have people who go to Burning Manor Africa burn, but they tell us ahead of time now, which is great. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's, that's one of the uh, corporate governance principles I now learned is if you're going to take off two weeks, you at least have to tell your boss you're going to do it.
1: I asked John about his first project in Africa and some of the things that MIT didn't prepare him for.
0: It was an amazing experience. So it was working with the CDC and PEPFAR in Zambia, building SmartCare. And that that system is still in place today. And it is a national medical record system that had a portable health record that could be downloaded onto a smart card. Um, So it's still one of, if not the only smart card-based system I'm aware of in the markets we serve. And it was a full EMR.
1: EMR, Electronic Medical Record. These software systems are no joke. Because they're used for the treatment and care of patients, they need to be secure, complete, and bug-free to a standard that most software systems don't have to live up to.
0: It was touchscreen-based. Um, we learned a lot from Jerry Douglas and um, Baobab Health in Malawi. Uh, they had a touchscreen-based system that we took a lot of lessons from, and the nice. open OpenMRS community was just starting at that time, so we learned a lot from their data model and approach. Um, so it was a really fun collaborative period, and it was... Um, It was also great because we built up a local engineering team in Zambia as well as having our team, which was based in Boston. So we had a really international collaboration, and as you know, having um, joined Damagi, like that, that original project, really, we became a global and like kind of virtual company um, from day one. So it was very comfortable for us to work across time zones, across geographies and others. Um, but the project had a lot of challenges as well. That was my first yeah. experience of seeing what it could be like when you collect a lot of data, but nobody has time to do anything with it. <laughs> <You> know, so <laughs> we were asking a lot of these nurses and physicians to input data, whether it's an antenatal care record or an HIV record. And I started to kind of have this sweaty sense of like, but what good is being created? You know, there's the real-time support that, that theoretically is being used, but is it being used in real time? Is that really helping patient outcomes?
1: What is John talking about here? I would posit that most of the information systems that we build with aid funding are designed around indicators for funders. You're running a clinic, and at the end of every week or month, you fill in a mountain of paper forms in order to unlock the funding. But that's very different than the kind of technology that will help you do your work better. Real-time decision support means not just reporting on the number of cases diagnosed or stock available, but actively improving the way cases are diagnosed or how stock is resupplied.
0: And so this project gave me a lot of my current attitude towards technology, which is it can be incredibly helpful, but if you don't use it correctly, it can actually be negative value for a project or a waste of time. And so it's mm. really important to make sure that it's used um, in a way that, that makes sense, that's, that's really supporting the users and the care they're providing to their patients. And the people who need the data, the epidemiologists or others, that's a really important stakeholder, but it's not the only stakeholder. And I'd argue in many cases, not the most important stakeholder.
1: That makes a lot of sense. What was the hardest thing for you in that first project where you're still cutting your teeth, as it were?
0: just how hard it is to build software that works <laughs> like it's it's like this was this was thick client software so for those who um you know some of your listeners may literally have never used an application like this but it was like you, you we had a usb key you had to install the software there was a splash screen that's a installing smart care like onto your computer and if there was a bug mm-hmm. we had to go like run around to every clinic and update the software now you know most software is web based so you just push deploy and it's fixed but it was crazy so like a tiny little bug would take days to go update in all these <laughs> clinics and that oh, experience man. of just how hard building technology that worked was plus we're dealing with power outages and touchscreen monitors and smart cards and we had to write custom drivers so there's a lot of tech in oh. these systems and i i gave it a huge appreciation for like how hard it is to get anything to work <laughs> um <laughs> from, my, from an engineering standpoint much less at scale <laughs>
1: Yeah. Nowadays, you can just do a a real-time update. You can just push out updates every couple of minutes if you want to. And and back then you needed to get it right immediately because you were going to visit that clinic once and it wasn't going to get updated until the next time someone came back to run an update. Uh, So for all those reasons, you needed it to be really rock solid.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: You can tell John's an optimist and an idealist, but even someone with the energy that John has sometimes hits a wall.
0: One of the big challenges I felt on this Amory project, as I mentioned earlier, was just, you know, are we helping more than we're hurting? You know, we're spending a lot of money, we're buying smart cards, we're deploying this heavyweight technology. And I started to have a lot of self-doubt, you know, as to Mm. what the benefit of the system was and therefore what the benefit of like my time and the rest of the small DeMagi team that was working on it at the time. And I started to really... Talk to the project director at the CDC about this and saying, like, how do we know if like this is worth it? You know, we're collecting a lot of data, theoretically, you then use that data to inform insights. And that was very concerning to me because I, you know, we we I go do user-centered design with the nurses and ask them if they like the system and watch them use the system, and I even I I had a sense at the time, and people later proved this, but like obviously you're the one bringing the technology, they're not going to tell you they don't like it to your face, you know, like they're going to (laughs) just say they like it because that's human nature to to not want to displease the person who wrote it,
1: particularly in Zambia.
0: Exactly, exactly. I had somewhat self-doubt. I was actually becoming quite disgruntled on the project to the annoyance of the project director and others. <laughs> and I started to feel like this actually wasn't worth it. You know, I felt like we weren't having enough of an impact for the the nurses and the doctors and the frontline users.
1: Sort of an early existential crisis.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I got into an increasingly adversarial, in hindsight, annoying <laughs> way to behave. And I would
1: have loved to see that.
0: It got to a point where our CTO at the time was in Zambia and I'm like, look, if they really don't think any of our ideas are valued, they don't want to hear this from us, I think they should find a new vendor. And this, this was half of our revenue at the time. Wow. And my CTO That's was huge. out to dinner and he called, you know, I remember this, I was in Boston. He calls me from the bathroom in Zambia and he's like, I really think they're going to tell us to take a hike if I keep pushing this. I'm like, look. What was the
1: source I, of the conflict? Like, why? Why were you coming to heads?
0: I just, I, I feel like we, had, we hadn't unlocked the potential of the user and it was because we, we weren't serving the user. We were serving the need to collect this data and that was the wrong goal. The goal should have been, is this nurse going to provide better care to this patient because this system exists? Everything else is noise. And that that then feeds into a lot of like, where do you make investments in the roadmap? How do you do user-centered design? And a lot of this informed our future designer of the mango tree philosophy of really making sure that you wanted to use the software. So, you know, we were talking with the project director and He's like, no, you know, we're going to head this direction. This is what I think is best. And like, okay, well, we, you know, respectfully disagree. Let's get you a new vendor who's aligned to your vision. Wow. And so we walked away from the project.
1: What does that revenue loss mean for a company of Demagi's size at the time?
0: It was terrifying. I was like, am I going to have to lay off people? Can I afford to pay everybody? And within, I'd say, two months, we got very fortunate, landed a couple of new new contracts that made, made up for that revenue. But it that also, I'm really proud of us and the team that, you know, we had the backbone to do that and really stood up for, we're not just here to be a vendor in the market. We're not just here to um, do what other organizations are asking us to do. We're here to be a true partner to really empower these users. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to take it upon ourselves to make sure we're living up to that goal. And, and we fail all the time at that goal. Don't get me wrong <laughs> that we haven't done projects where they're, they're bad or we end up not meeting the needs of the users. But um, that early project really made me um, proud of us as an organization to, to put a line in the sand. But, um, you know, I still often on projects, I'm filled with like existential dread of like, oh, is this another project where, you know, we're doing more harm than good with the technology that we're rolling out.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting point that you make about the division between this need to provide the data versus actually serving the, serving the people that are doing the work <laughs> to deliver healthcare. Um, to, a lot of extent, to a lot of extent, like that same tension sort of makes its way through the whole industry.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of times it's also a false choice. You know, this mm. is something that if you serve the user, you're going to get better data back. Mm. And so even if your end goal was just to collect better data, you're going to get better data. You're going to get more real-time data that's used from the point of care if your goal was to empower that frontline user and to empower him or her to provide better services to the client. So that really is where we've now kind of taken the company and and what led to our flagship product comcare but the other thing i'll say is i could never shake the feeling that like the nurses didn't want the emr in the first place no matter how good it was you know i was <laughs> like this is kind of an annoying data entry right. task there's these thick paper registers everybody who works in our sector has seen mm-hmm. but they're actually not bad you know they, they're <laughs> one row per per patient the data is very well organized it flows into the bubble sheet itself And the reason I say they didn't necessarily want the EMR was not because a fully digitized solution would not be great and more productive. It's we were only offering to solve half the problem. We weren't taking the reporting burden off of their plate. We weren't helping them print out patient follow-ups. You know, we weren't doing the things that traditional full-blown digital solutions should be doing for nurses, and so I, our maximal vision—you mm. know—at the time, and it, it's progressed into a much much more impressive, comprehensive approach. But our maximal vision at the time maybe shouldn't have been something a nurse would want, even if it worked exactly as advertised.
1: What do you say to yourself on those days when you're just not sure whether we're just creating more work or driving more indicators from people who are busy enough as it is?
0: It's tough. I, I'll be honest. Like it's—it's it's, you sit there and you're like. Are are we really, you know, helping the people that we're trying to serve? And and I think one of the things I'm very proud of is we we at Mogi have always had this philosophy of trying to design with the end user in mind. I remember a quick anecdote when I was working on a calendar. So you pick the date of the visit. I spent all this time thinking through it on my own without getting any user feedback. <laughs> Go out to the field a month after I released this feature. And I watched the nurse try to input a form from the day before. And rather than use the huge button I had for yesterday. She goes down to the Wist- Windows system date oh, time, no. opens the system clock, moves the date back <laughs> to the previous day and then clicks today because oh, no. I made the today button even bigger. And so, I, <laughs> you know, so one, of the, one of the things that I think always kind of is nourishing, you know, for me, kind of like a extrovert versus introvert, like just watching end users, respecting end users, listening to what they want and then fixing it for them hmm. has always given me you know, kind of filled up my cup of, of the the well to keep going. And I don't personally get a chance to do that anymore, but I read literally every single project report out that our company still sends. I wow. read because I love trying to understand how we can really impact the users and, and how we can respect them and support them.
1: That's awesome. John, tell me a little bit more about the twists and turns that you took in those early years when you were still trying to define what Damagi was.
0: Yeah, so you joined about twelve years ago, and this is right when we were making our first business model pivot. So long ago. I know, I know. It was a great time, though.
1: That's true. You told me to learn uh, Ruby on Rails. I
0: did, I did. (laughs) Well, this is exactly right. This is right when Ruby on Rails and Django were coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, This was before smartphones existed.
1: These are programming platforms, web platforms, for the benefit of our audience to build stuff.
0: Yes, they're now very popular web platforms. But back then, they were just emerging. When I first um, came, and we were running the company as a custom software shop, so you would hire Damagi, pay us some money, we'd build you some software. And very quickly, we realized this isn't going to work because who's going to maintain the software? The clients can't afford to keep paying us and nobody else can do it because it's a, a custom pile of code. So then we pivoted the types of projects we were willing to do to still being custom software, but they were built on open source projects. So we collaborated on a community that we helped co-found called OpenRosa and JavaRosa, which created this very powerful form engine that's now inside of ComCare, Open data Kit, and many other very popular data collection tools but also Rapid SMS with UNICEF and team members to help build messaging-based solutions. We were supporters of the OpenMRS community. So that next business model that lasted for several years looked at, okay, we can get the sustainability solved through the open source community and we can focus on the initial build-out. That business model also started to fail because we'd see our projects still get shelved. What we then realized was the maintenance of these software solutions was the huge problem. And that's still the huge problem today. So we went from supporting open source projects to becoming a product company. And that transition was incredibly hard. Many, many tech companies failed to to get over this um, transition when they tried to move from being a professional services-focused organization to a product-focused Organization, we were very fortunate to have strong support from multiple donors and clients to make this transition. Um, and that led to the start of building ComCare, which actually came out before smartphones existed. Um, so I think we. We're ahead of the market in terms of recognizing the explosion of potential for mobile devices and um, frontline workers and specifically community healthcare workers that we often are equipping. And those, that business model transformation took a long time. We never raised outside capital. Um, so Damagi has been bootstrapped nice. since day one. And that allowed us to both be self-driven in our vision, but also it took a long time. Um, you know, so the way we built Comcare in the early days was working with each partner who hired us to deploy Comcare, each one would be throwing in, you know, an extra twenty or thirty grand for the feature that they wanted um, to be added to Comcare. And we would have our engineering team do it and then move that into the global good open source code base. So that was really the the huge switch that now led us to the business model we have today. But back then and even today sometimes, like our market in global health is not like paying for product fees. And so we often get <laughs> Um, pushback on our business model. And one of the things that I'm really proud of at Domagi is how much time and effort and innovation we've put, not just into our technology, not just into our services, but the sustainability of Domagi as a whole. And that I think is one of the unique things about where we sit in the market and also one of the unique things about what I'm personally drawn to. Um, you know, as, you, as I mentioned earlier, I had the self-doubt and still have the self-doubt about like, is this the right way to spend time, my time or team's time, use of technology? And so one of the huge things I constantly ask myself is like, what is the path to massive scale, massive impact? Um, you know, how is what we're doing mm. today going to lead to amazing progress tomorrow? That's a lofty goal. You know, I don't know if we'll achieve it, but I've mm-hmm. always been drawn to how business is a key ingredient for whatever answer we're going to have to that question.
1: Interesting. And that ties back to your your history and your relationship with entrepreneurialism. Can I ask two, two points um, that we went over quite quickly, but is related to this this question of business and social impact one is open source uh, I think that's a, that's a big move away from a traditional business model um, at the time and then the second question is product I think those are two major strategic decisions that you made about the organization uh, they must have been hard there must have been a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of a lot of tension leading up to those decisions uh, can you paint a little color around either or both of those decisions?
0: Yeah, so for, for um, open source, I very quickly thought that the market could not support proprietary software <laughs> in terms of the margin you could make. Um, like, there just didn't seem like there was going to be enough money. Just too poor. Yeah, so I, I felt like open source is going to be the way to go. We were one of the main leaders, I think, of the open source movement within the global health industry um, back oh. in the day, and, and I think it's been um, wonderful to see how it's blossomed. But as I mentioned, you know, uh, several of our, our team members were supporting OpenRest at the time. We supported the growth of an open source data collection tool that, that spawned many of the popular data collection tools that are out there today, and we worked with RapidSMS. So we had those kind of three main open source projects that we were supporting. And again, it just seemed like the margin was not gonna be there for kind of a traditional proprietary software approach. And I think in hindsight, that was that was true. What I do think there's a huge fallacy though, is that open source is free. And, and you hear this a ton mm-hmm. from the community, but the hard part at this point, I think, is not writing the software code itself. It's how you manifest that code into something that's useful for the user. And it's similar to if you had a blueprint for a drug, That doesn't do you a lot of good unless you can manufacture the drug at scale. And and I I look at software similarly. So what we're really passionate about is is taking that open source code base and turning it into something that's very cost effective and and highly valuable for the end user. And that is something that requires a business approach because that's sustainability, that's that's a recurring cost. You've got to figure out a way that people are willing to bear that cost, whether it's a donor community, a government, or the user themselves in order to have that work on a recurring basis. And there's this kind of build, operate, transfer model that is very common in government sector projects. So you hire a vendor, they build the thing, they operate it for a few years, and then they transfer it to the government. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look at what the most game-changing technologies have been globally, they're not fitting into that model. These are services that people use a lot. They get better over time. They're not static. And they have a feedback loop that really empowers the end users. And that's something that I think can only happen if you take a product mentality to what you're offering in the market. And that's something we've done with our software, but it's not unique to just software. I think the product feedback loop is incredibly powerful for paying attention to what end users really want, ensuring that what you're building is really gonna have impact. And it's been hard to be you know, um, uh, quite honest about it. I would say we're still trying to become an amazing product company from a discipline standpoint, because our industry is still very heavily project-based funded. Um, and you've had you know speakers from the Gates Foundation and others on this podcast, but these big three or five-year grants don't necessarily lend themselves to creating great products. And that's something that um, I really felt passionately about. If we didn't have a product-based approach, we were not going to crack the sustainability puzzle of how it kept running after that three or five years.
1: And that actually ties back to the story you're talking about in Zambia. Um, this tension between generating data versus actually helping people do their work. When you talk about product and product fees that are sustained by users themselves, uh, that whole business model is set up in such a way that it rewards things that are actually useful to the user. Um, whereas the, the project-based funding is more inclined towards the funders who want to come in, uh, want to get some data and can provide that grant. So it's just interesting to see how that how those experiences that you had initially in Zambia have played themselves out in the way that you're shaping your organization?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think the 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 downside of trying to be open source and a product mentality, while also acknowledging that donors are going to fund the majority of the market, that the margins are small, mean that it's an incredibly hard job. You know, like uh, that's one of the things that I reflect on is like our our jobs in this industry, not just at Damagi, but I'd say most people in the digital development sector these are hard, complex jobs because you are balancing you know, the needs of donors, the needs of governments, and trying to make sure that user can create impact. And I think it's, I love it, but it's definitely not for everybody. You know, There's a lot of frustration that can occur when you have to balance so many different factors. And I'm very, I get excited by ambiguity and balancing factors, but um, some people just want to take the hill on a very well-defined problem. And, and that's not, in my opinion, possible in our sector.
1: Is there a way forward that you can imagine? Is there a way that you can see things getting better in terms of doing this kind of tech work in the aid industry?
0: I, I do have hope and and concern. I'd say, on the on the hope side, I think the the obviousness of what digital can potentially do is like kind of. Uh, Given at this point. You know, I don't think anybody has to be convinced of the potential for digital. I do have concerns, and it's not just in the markets that we serve in in lower and middle income markets, but all markets, around how to create vibrant, viable public and private partnerships. I think governments should not necessarily be trying to build the skills in-house to do these highly sophisticated technology approaches, which have natural economies of scale that need to be recognized in order to get the price point low enough. So I see a lot of governments with a very valid concern for data sovereignty. Um, for making sure they're not dependent on third-party vendors but I also see the likes of Amazon and Google completely taking over the market you know in other markets that we we look at and hmm. the, those two things are coming head to head I think the economies of scale and the natural trend of technology combined with sovereignty and the need to not be dependent on any one private sector player I think is is problematic and I, I think that's something that we spend a lot of time trying to advocate for different approaches and experiment with different models and how we can partner with the government effectively to ensure they have what they need. They're not dependent on us, but they're able to, to utilize us. And as long as we're being a good partner to them, we hope they, they want that partnership to continue.
1: John and I have worked together for many years now, and it seems like right after every big success, there awaits another mountain to climb. So I asked John about some of the struggles he's faced more recently. With Damagi, and his level of optimism for the path forward.
0: Oh man, there's been so many, (laughs) there's been so (laughs) many struggles. I mean, the amount of heartbreak I have with our projects that have failed is substantial. And and you've worked on several of these yourselves, where we pour months, years into these projects and just can't get them to sustainability. So I think the thing that I'm still filled with dread is like, I, you know, we haven't cracked it. We've gotten Demoggy to have a sustainable business model, and that's great, and I'm super proud of that, and we're now in a fortunate position to um, leverage that strength to push even harder on sustainability. But if you look at the sectors, projects in general, but also Demoggy's specifically, on the likelihood that that project's still running 10 years from now, it's unfortunately um, not high. And I still have that fear and angst of, you know, (laughs) if that's not going to be around in 10 years, is it worth doing today? And how much do we balance um, doing what's necessary today to create immediate impact with moving the ball forward for long-term sustainability and long-term impact? And I think that's something that, you know, the jury's still out and it's it's something I'm going to try my best at, but I would, I would, I think we're probably the furthest along and I don't think we've solved it.
1: I think it's a great point, John. I'm just going to repeat it because it's so important. Uh, When we look at the different projects, uh, these digital health projects that have played out across the industry, there's very few that have actually made the cut. There's very few that have lasted and that have scaled, particularly in proportion to how many of these projects are out there. It's one thing to ensure the long-term business model of an organization like Demagi. It's another to have confidence in any one project uh, that's launched that it's going to make it, that it's going to make the cut. And that's something that anyone working in the sector should be wrestling with.
0: Absolutely. And I think, I don't remember the exact stat, but um, something like 70% of corporate digital transformation projects fail. And they're spending lots of money on very expensive consultants and like have a really important business reason they did it and they still fail at this. So if you think about most of our projects are in fact, not just trying to deploy software, but digitally transform a healthcare service or digitally transform an agriculture service. The prior probability on failure, just barring from the corporate sector, might be 70%. Add on lower margins, more difficult technology, harder to reach users. And what is the prior odds that your project's going to succeed? And it's unfortunately not, not a good success rate.
1: John, is there anything else you'd like to add before we switch over to the rapid fire?
0: Well, I say, you know, with, with that negative uh, uh, side <laughs> good, I think the other is the potential is just so large. Like the the amount of potential good you can do if you crack this coming into the sector, finding a viable product or service that meets a need for underserved populations. Like you've seen this in so many different products that have exploded with adoption because users like them, users get value. And if you have that mindset, I you know implore you to come into the industry and, and try to, to make it work because um, there, there's just so much potential impact. And that's why I'm so excited by it. I'm still very frustrated with how the market's maturing and wish we could move faster and further. But I'm I'm so incredibly optimistic about the potential for technology as well.
1: Awesome, John, and I will say one of the things I deeply respect about you is your eternal enthusiasm, your internal optimism, and that that entrepreneurial spirit that you have to always be throwing yourself against this tough, tough industry and sector uh, and experimenting with how can we actually get it to start working.
0: Yeah, <laughs> thanks, for I appreciate that, and, and you've been part of that journey. And I think I I wouldn't be as optimistic as I was if I didn't see amazingly talented people also putting up with all these challenges and us trying to do it together, um, both within, oh, stop, John. within <laughs> the overall <laughs> sector. I mean, I, I, for a lot of the listeners who've, who've worked in this sector for 10 plus years, they're they're all facing the same problems. You know, these aren't unique to Tamagi. And, and it's something that I, I have immense respect for the people who are fighting the fight.
1: Nice. John, a few last questions to wrap up our conversation. First question for you is, if you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: Oh, man, I, uh, it's a great question. I, I think the thing in hindsight that I wish I did a lot more of was learn from experienced people. I was very fortunate <laughs> to be around a lot of people in the sector who were much older than me when I was traveling, and mm. I loved hearing their perspective. It shaped a lot of how I view the world um, and, and our industry. And I just wish I was better at doing what you're doing, basically, you know, just like being interested (laughs) in their perspective and talking to them. And so if I could talk to my younger self, I'd be like, every time you're traveling, anytime you meet somebody who's interesting, buy them a drink and just learn as much as you can from their perspective, because there's people who have spent you know 30 years doing development work and um, there's (laughs) so much time.
1: For sure. Do you have any asks uh, for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast?
0: Well, money would be one good thing, but... Uh, <laughs> so blunt, so blunt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'd like some too. <laughs> yeah, uh, money for Rowena and I. But um, I think that the big ask is to really focus on sustainability. Technology is an assumptive good. I think we can all assume we don't need the next pilot to prove that technology could work. I think the focus is needs to be on sustainability.
1: Nice. Would you like to offer a shout out to someone else in this industry who has inspired or guided you?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, one person who's been incredibly supportive from the Gates Foundation is Tim Wood. And he's been both hard on us and incredibly supportive of our vision. And uh, just a huge shout out to to them as, as we've gotten incredible support from BMGF over the years.
1: For sure. What is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in this industry, since I know you have so much time to read now? (laughs)
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I don't read a ton. Um, I've been pretty impressed with DevX coverage of, of events lately, so I get their you know their nice. daily email, and um, have have really enjoyed getting my news uh, from them.
1: Yeah, I remember John. There used to be a time where it felt like every month you were sending out a recommendation to some awesome new book that you just finished reading, and then I think you had kids or something because <laughs> that stopped. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, that, that stopped pretty abruptly when my uh, seven year old was born. <laughs>
1: Last question, John, just for fun, is there a book, a blog, a podcast, a Twitter that you'd recommend just from personal interest or for fun?
0: Yes. Ministry for the Future. I just read this book. I heard it recommended from Ezra Klein, who's a writer at the New York Times.
1: Oh, you do still read.
0: Um, I do. I do. On occasion. Um, And this was a (laughs) awesome fiction book about this kind of like semi-dystopic future where the energy crisis has all governments needing to figure out a way to collaborate and bring down global energy consumption. And it it was a fascinating read.
1: Well, thank you so much, John, for being on the show today. It was lovely to have you.
0: Thanks so much, everyone. It was a pleasure.
1: And that's a wrap for the first year of 8 Evolved and for 2021. In December, I'll give you a tiny preview of what we're thinking for our next season. Stay tuned for more. And don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.